There exists throughout history moments of time which are indelibly marked as events where the world itself seemed to change. Iconic milestones that, for those who witnessed them, signified that what had gone before was now irrevocably altered. In our age, there are those who would recall, perhaps with powerful clarity, episodes like the fall of the Berlin Wall or the, the catastrophic events of 9-11 or other fragments of time, which remain fresh in the memory, so shocking were they to witness, so important were they in their consequence. These are things where, rightly or wrongly, we tend to respond to these peripetia with the belief that our world, the societies we live in, have changed and that we now have to adjust to a new reality. I mention these moments and this sensation because for the residents of London in the year 1017, I honestly believe they too must have experienced the sense that they were also striding into a geopolitical terror incognita. England had fallen. Edmund Ironsides was dead. Upon the throne sat a Dane. He had been anointed, elevated, acclaimed and crowned in London. He was recognised as King of the English, but he was a foreigner. And more than that, he was a conqueror. The London King, the residents of our city, would have seen a new regime and known that while the wars that had so plagued the land of late were finally over, they now faced a new reality. And it was one where, technically speaking, they were on the losing side. One where the consequences of their actions over the previous few years would have to be accounted for. It was a future where they faced a reckoning. Hi, my name is Saul and this is the Story of London, a podcast dedicated to telling the tale of London as a single narrative, one story complete unto itself. Each chapter of this epic saga takes us a little further along as we try to work out what the residents had to cope with and how they coped with it. And this one covers the years 1017 until 1020, as London tries to figure out how to deal with a new ruler. Welcome then to chapter 35 of the story of London, The Blood Raven. historian, it often feels that I describe moments from the past in painfully dry detail and remove from them the sheer emotional impact of what it was like to witness those events. Take, for example, this statement, Canute had just conquered England, full stop. That sentence feels so innocent, just sitting there quietly on the page. It doesn't do that event justice, the horror of it, the psychological shock of it, the sheer sense of apocalyptical ferocity that had gone with that campaign. We cannot possibly know just how much of an impact the takeover of Canute caused on people. 
The 11th century is not one famed for its awareness of mental health and emotional trauma, to be honest. But we do get hints of how folks felt about things from poetry written at the time. One Scandinavian poet described this era in lurid, rather dark tones. Quote, A harsh world it will be, whoredom, rampant, an axe age, a sword age, shields shattered, a wind age, a wolf age, before man's age tumbles down, unquote. Another Scandinavian poet had written a verse to celebrate Canute's victory. While his praise poem was typical, filled with the words that were the standard benediction towards a triumphant conqueror, there remains that ominous overtone in this poem also. The poet evokes the Scandinavian symbol of death, the raven. And the Nordic poets at the time called ravens by many names, the swans of blood, the carnage grouse, the corpse vultures. But this particular poet, he refers to ravens as the blood crane. Quote, Mighty king, you performed a feat under shield of Asseton. The blood crane received dark carrion, unquote. For the English people, in the aftermath of Canute taking the throne, it would have felt that the ravens of death had seemingly been given their fill of dark carrion. For the residents of London, the preceding years had simply been a bloodbath. The list of those killed read like a who's who of the nation. You had the powerful, so the likes of Erdemann Uhtred of Northumbria and Erdemann Godwin of Lindsay. You had the brave, like Ulfkettle of East Anglia, and you had craven cowards like Erdemann Ilfric of Hampshire. You had a countless score of unnamed men and boys killed in the fjord, and to this you even added the names of the holy men of God, the Bishop of Dorchester, Eadnoth, and the Abbot of Ramsey, Wolfseeds. Their names had been additions to the tithe given to the blood cranes. And yet the English were not alone in suffering great losses. The invaders had suffered also. And what's most fascinating is that the traces of the cost to Canute's forces are found across the sea. There exists, across Scandinavia, a series of amazing relics from this era. The ancient runestones left over from the age of the Vikings. These runestones come in all shapes and sizes. Some contain uh, only a few glyphs upon them, while others are far more elaborate in their wording and what's carved there. What's even more interesting is that 30 or so of these relics are referred to as the English runestones. They are a separate class of these things, originating from the late era Vikings of the 11th century, and whose existence refers to the distant campaigns across the North Sea upon the bloodstained shores of England. On them, we get a glimpse of the sheer cost for the invaders, and find not glorious verses extolling the hope to die bravely in battle, crying out the glories of Odin, but rather very human emotions of fear and grief, of worry and loss. You can't help but wonder at the man who erected a runestone before he left to fight for the Danish prince, and had carved upon its side that he, quote, had this stone raised in memory of himself. 
he took Canute's payment in England. May God help his spirit, unquote. In Norway, there is a runestone carved with these words, quote, Arnstein raised this stone in memory of Bjur, his son, who died in the retinue when Canute attacked England, unquote. Did Bjur die in some battle in the north, in Warwickshire, in the west? We don't know. We do know there are references to the siege and battles for London, because there is a stone in Skellia in Sweden dedicated to two Swedish boys, one called Manny and one called Sveen, and on it it asks, quote, May God help their souls well, and they lie in London, unquote. Of course, the men who sailed with Canute were motivated more by profit, and that was an impowerful incentive over fear. In Upland, two sons erected a runestone to remember their father, a man called Ulf. Upon its surface are carved the following words, quote, Ulf has taken three payments in England. That was the first that Totsi paid. Then Thorkill paid. Then Canute paid, unquote. Following his son's account, this Ulf was a man used to the raiding lifestyle. He had sailed once to England under someone we think was the father-in-law of Sven Forkbeard, suggesting he was part of an earlier raid. He then accepted the leadership of Thorkill, which would have technically have made Ulf a Yom's Viking, and which probably saw him fighting against the English and then possibly for the English if he remained. And finally, Ulf had joined Canute's second invasion of England. That's quite the career. All these men had been blown far from home, and had sacrificed much to gain England. Dark carrion had been given from both sides. Given this, given the scale of this war, I believe our residents of London knew that one hell of a reckoning was coming. There were other reasons for the Londoners to feel trepidation. It is said that Utah the Black, son of Canute, quote, Only a boy, you ship batterer, when you launched your boat, no king was younger than you, unquote. There is some debate about the age of this conqueror. Most believe he was in his early twenties when he took the throne, and to the residents of London, this meant something very specific. Yes, yes, sure, kings of England died young, often very young. But the nation had just seen what happens when a king didn't die young. Ethelred had ruled England for an entire generation, during which the nation had been transformed. What if this Canute was going to rule for a generation? What then? What fate was destined for the city? And so the residents of London were very probably just asking themselves one single question. What did this Canute Want. Well, to begin with, the new King of England's needs were imminent and powerful. He was a young man now in charge of a vast country, made up of diverse and independent regions. He had taken the most important of these regions, Wessex, the highly organised central nervous system of this state, which gave him an advantage going forward. The second advantage? His new subjects were war-weary and desperate for peace. But away from this, 
Now came the complications he had to deal with. His Scandinavian followers had, as we said, sacrificed much to hazard him the throne. They would have wanted their rewards for this. And then you had the English nobility who had thrown in their lot with him, helping him gain that critical local support he so needed to defeat Edmund Ironsides. Canute would have known he could only rule by force for so long. He had a large army at his disposal, but it would have become a liability if they hung around for too long. All of these stakeholders were pulling in differing directions and the young king had to manage it all. Now, while we can say Canute had shown he could cope with large bodies of followers all pulling in different directions, back in Denmark, as he had kept his ragtag alliance together and convinced them to sail over the waters and attack England for him, his challenge was now a magnitude harder. He wasn't going to be able to unite England behind some promised reward based on conquest. Canute had a very difficult route ahead of him. And so in the first few years, we see this young king simply trying to navigate his path through this miasma, ruthlessly trying to consolidate power. And understand, Canute was famed for his ruthlessness even at this young age. There was painful physical proof of this all across England. When he had been forced to flee England only a couple of years before, during his first failed attempt to take the throne, Canute had mutilated the hostages given to his father by the English people. He had not killed them, and they now resided with their families, vulnerable because he had removed their hands, their noseless faces with stumps for ears, visible reminders of how vicious and brutal this new king could be. So, we have a war that caused a sense of shock and trauma for many of the survivors. A new king trying desperately to consolidate his rule and facing a lot of pressures, threatening to pull apart his new regime. And he had a known predisposition to being utterly ruthless when he needed to be. Take this and now take on board. He seems to have liked to have been based in or near London and that London was currently occupied by many of his soldiers. Oh, this did not bode well. Canute's focus on London had one advantage, I suppose. He liked to summon the great and good to London. The residents of the city did not need to wonder what the great and good of the new regime looked like. The status quo came to them. I could talk in length about the policies Canute brought in that were intended to appease his newly conquered people and the law codes he may or may not have introduced, but it is the pragmatic ruthlessness he displays in his early years in power that most stands out for me. He was willing to do drastic things, regardless of the consequences. The best example was that in 1017, he utterly changed the political landscape of England with a single decree. England was to be divided into four. The basic idea seems to be that he would be king, ruler absolute. Under him would be four crucial linchpins of the state. To these men were granted a new rank, above mere ildermen. These were to be the Jarls of England. They answered only to Canute. Now, Jarl in Old English was the word Jarl, 
and a word we see used in terms like Yerdeman. But in time, they became known as the Earls of England. By granting them this rank, Canute now had the regions being run by men he could trust, allowing him to focus on the bigger picture of the whole nation policy. The most important of the earldoms was Wessex, which he decided to rule by himself, at least to begin with. His father had made the mistake of trying to focus his united kingdom on York, uh, but Canute had seen how this had led to the southern nobles to turn against him. He was determined not to make that mistake. Directly north of Wessex, the Earldom of Mercia was established and given to Idric Streona, the mercurial Anglo-Saxon who had enriched himself during the reign of Ethelred before betraying him and his son Ironsides and joining with Canute. Idric had supposedly swapped sides twice during the recent war piloting its dangerous waters by following the prevailing wind of fortune, it seemed. But to him now was the record of being ranked the highest of the status quo. The Earl of East Anglia, Canute gave to Thorkill the Tall. The mercenary Viking who had opposed his father so had now gained his reward for his help, which was control over one of the larger Anglo-Danish centres of the land. And finally, the Earldom of Northumbria, well, that continued to be the possession of his ever-loyal Eric Harkonnesen. So, Canute had nominally removed himself from the confusing maelstrom of Anglo-Saxon internal politics. His jarls would deal with the small local detail. He'd focus on the big stuff. That done, Canute could now deal with the threats to his new regime. King Ethelred was dead. His eldest son, Edmund Ironsides, was also dead. But the old ruling dynasty was still around, and they would have to be dealt with. On paper, Canute's biggest threat was Ethelred's oldest surviving son, Edwig, the last survivor of Ethelred's first marriage. And then there was Ethelred's still-alive widow, Emma, and the two sons of that union, Edward and Alfred, and then, on top of that, there were also the two sons of Edmund Ironsides, who Canute insisted should be placed under his personal care. Each of these names were a potential threat to Canute's rule as King of England. A purge was in order, it seems. It is said Idwig had been outlawed and exiled by Canute in early 1017, but then received word that the new king would allow him to return home, probably provided he gave up his claim to the throne. Idwig agreed and returned to England, but it was to be his undoing. Canute supposedly ordered him murdered. Then there were the two children of Edmund Ironsides, called Edward and Edmund respectively. Canute figured, perhaps correctly, that simply murdering two innocent infants would not have gone down well with the general population, and certainly would have put a bit of a dent into this image of a new just ruler of England. They were only a few months old, after all. So he sent them away to be fostered by his half-brother, Olaf, in Sweden, and then sent word that Olaf was to kill the boys. This Olaf, however, wasn't inclined to murder two infant children, and so sent the boys onwards. They disappear into the mists of history around now, and some say they went to Hungary, 
but more likely they were sent to the Viking kingdom of the Kiev Rus. There, in the air of modern-day Ukraine, the two brothers were to survive as exiles, and they and their tale would one day return to play part of the story of London, but that comes in the future. For now, for Knut, the Aetherlings Edward, Edmund and Yidrig were dealt with. That just left the family of Aethelred still alive over the sea in Normandy. But this was trickier, much trickier. Emma, the mother of the two Aethelings, was not just a former Queen of England, she was also sister to Duke Richard of Normandy, and he was a political power Canute could not afford to ignore. According to Norman reports, Canute's father had only begun the whole invasion of England a few years earlier after gaining permission and an agreement with Duke Richard. The region of Normandy was a huge powerhouse Canute could not afford to ignore, so he could not just order the two boys, Richard's nephews, dead. He had to adjust his thinking. If you want an insight into how much the world had changed in only a couple of years, you get it by looking at a much-overlooked twin series of events that took place during the Wars of England. Edmund Ironsides had married a woman called Elgith or Edith. Canute had married a woman called Elfgifu. Crucially, both these women were from the same family, a family of nobility stemming from the Mercian regions of England, and both men had married into that dynasty to cement support for their struggle to take England. Now Canute was king, he did not need Mercian support to raise troops. He needed Norman support to be treated as a legitimate king of England. He simply needed to get rid of his wife, Elfgifu, fast. And he needed a new, higher-profile wife. So he did just that. He practiced a long-standing policy of many Scandinavian kings and just put aside his first wife to marry another. Emma of Normandy. Norman sources about what followed are fairly clear on the exact sequence of events, perhaps way more so than the English sources. It appeared that Duke Richard of Normandy was somewhat unhappy with the situation across the Channel. Apparently, any deal he had originally brokered with Sven Forkbeard would have been made on the principle that Sven was looking to rule part of England, but not all of it, and that his nephews would have still been in line for the throne of Wessex. This deal had gone out the window, seemingly, when Sven had taken the throne and claimed all England, and the two nephews, their mother Emma, and eventually their father Ethelred, had ended up in the court of Duke uh, Richard by the new year of 1015. It had been the young Etheling Edward who had been sent to negotiate Ethelred's return, and there are several sources which claim that the actual reason Edmund Ironsides and King Ethelred had been at odds a couple of years previously was the clear understanding that King Ethelred had picked young Edward to inherit the throne and not his oldest son, Edmund or Edwig. But now Duke Richard's nephews were in exile and fearful for their lives. One can imagine the Norman Duke's thinking. Did Canute think he could purge his family? The Duke of Normandy was not the kind of man to accept such thing. So, as we said, 
The Norman records are very clear about what happens next. Canute, quote, made peace with Richard by which he married the Duke's sister, Ethelred's widow, unquote. Now the Scandinavian accounts of this event suggest Emma was a trophy of war and the Anglo-Saxon records use the term that she was fetched to be married. But Emma here was no wilting violet and clearly should not be underestimated. She was, after all, half Danish from her mother and spoke Danish fairly well, allowing her converse with her new husband as she had undoubtedly learned English to converse with her former one. Crucially, all the evidence seemed to suggest that Emma came into this marriage with her eyes wide open and the relationship was beneficial for both parties. Quickly, the influence of having Queen Emma, and therefore Normandy on his side, played out well for Canute, with grants of land being given to Norman duchies on the English south coast, and Canute now using his new wife to get her brother to negotiate a little bit of peace with the Scots after some trouble had broken out up north. For her end of the bargain, well, if her mother, a woman called Gunnar, was Danish and the family had been unashamedly proud of their Danish heritage, then she would have known exactly how Scandinavian dynastic unions tended to treat women. Emma was not to be the new elf Gifu. She would not be passed over with when Canute needed a new wife for diplomatic reasons. She was also a much-needed continuity for Canute as she already had established relations with the English nobility and the English court. She had, after all, been Queen of England since the year 1002, and as such, as part of her marriage arrangement to Canute, she could demand and be recognised as Queen of England. With this, Canute could rest easy. Duke Richard would not be sailing over to place his nephew Edward on the throne. But Canute was not done with his purges. He still needed to consolidate power even more. It was time to settle all old scores. At Christmas in the year 1017, he showed his ruthlessness again. We know that Eadric Streona was summoned to London, where his new king wished to see him. Leaving behind his lands, where most of his loyal followers were based, Adric made his way to the city with three of his most trusted men. Supposedly, when he arrived, quote, The king said sadly, Shall you, who have deceived your lord with guile, be capable of being true to me? I will return to you a worthy reward, unquote. At this moment, Canute supposedly summoned Eric Raconesson, the Earl of Northumbria, and said to him, quote, Pay this man what we owe him, that is to say, kill him lest he play us for false. Unquote. There are several versions of what happened next. In one, Eric suffocated Strayona and then threw him out of a window where his body fell into the River Thames. In another, his body was thrown over the wall and then left unburied. In another, the Earl of the North took an axe and beheaded the Earl of Mercia with a single blow, and then maybe his head was placed on a pole overlooking London. But whatever the case, Idric Streona was dead, with one version of the Anglo-Saxon Chronicle saying that he'd been, quote, very rightly killed, unquote. 
Strayona's death, while a shocking murder of one of the Anglo-Saxons who had helped the king gain power, wasn't seen as too destabilising to the regime. As Roger of Wendover himself says at the time, quote, But whether the traitor ended his life one way or another, it doesn't matter much, since this is sufficiently clear that he, who had deceived so many by the just judgment of God, met with consigned punishment, unquote. Yidric Strayona had a lot of enemies, and it's worth mentioning who was in Canute's court at this time and who would have been delighted at Strayona's death. It was the son of the exiled pirate Wulfnoth Child. You, you may remember him. Back in chapter 27, I mentioned how Wulfnoth had been exiled by Strayona and his brother and had sailed off with 20 newly built English ships and then destroyed another 80 newly built English ships before disappearing into the sunset, possibly giving King Ethelred the finger. The story goes that Wolfnoth died in 1014. His son, however, had been one of the most loyal Anglo-Saxon followers of Canute, a man called Godwin, and Godwin would have had a reason to see Strayona and his family and his circle of supporters brought low, in time, this man would become the Earl of Wessex for Canute, but that comes a little bit in the future. So, Strayona was dead, his land is divided up, a new Mercian Earl is created, and Eric's son, Harkon, was given some of Strayona's lands, as well as the county of Worcester. But ultimately, it was just another step that Canute had taken to be able to consolidate his power even more. And the purge was not yet done. The next year, 1018, King Canute organised the payoff for his men of the gargantuan sum of £72,000. This huge amount was known as the gaffol, or the tribute. This staggering amount of money would be roughly the entire gross domestic product of the nation of England for the year. This money was given as the bedrock of his payment to the army. And it is worth noting that it was here that London began to discover what their retribution would be. You see, the city was ordered to pay £10,500, and this was on top of the tribute they were to raise otherwise a cripplingly harsh financial punishment for the wealthy town because of their support of the last two Anglo-Saxon kings. Now, as a result of the huge cash influx, most of the money was given to Canute's men, allowing the survivors return back to Denmark in 1018 well paid. And while the tax had been crippling upon England, Canute was able to show that he had successfully demobbed his army and they were all back in Scandinavia and the English people seemed to have taken it. Yet keep in mind, London was clearly not forgiven by the king. It and East Anglia had been the most stalwart regions who had opposed Canute and his father. Canute would never fully trust the town. As such, while Canute's Grand Army of Followers had been dismissed, London was effectively placed under permanent military occupation. 
A resident fleet of the remaining Scandinavians was based in or very close to London, some historians thinking it was on the South Bank somewhere. This fleet on the Thames became known as the Lysmen of London. They would be Canute's force in the capital, and as we will see, he did not fear to use them to keep London under a tight leash. But Canute's displeasure at London was not just focused on its citizens. The city, after all, had just one named noble within it, the Bishop of London. And the bishops of London had been stalwart in their oppositions to both Canute and his father. Bishop Aelfhan, for example, had escorted the Aethelings Edward and Alfred to the safety of Normandy in 1013, and his successor, Bishop Aelfwig, had been the cleric who probably played the largest role in the elevation of Edmund Ironsides to the position of king in London in 1016. The bishops of London could expect sharp treatment from Canute, and we have evidence to suggest this indeed is what happened. As well as the exceptional and punitive tax of 1018, there were also additional penalties inflicted upon the bishops of London itself. The vast manor of Southminster in Essex, 30 hides worth of prime property, was seized from the estate of the Bishop of London and given to the Crown, a penalty that did not see this land returned for more than 50 years. We have reason to believe that out of the 15 estates and land honings belonging to the Bishop of London and the community of London held around the year 1000, at least six, if not more, were in the hands of private ownership, having been seized by Canute and then given away, and two more were retained by the king. King Canute was now fully in charge, and he was gaining confidence. And London was clearly a place he was at best weary towards, but most probably hostile towards. He'd inflicted upon its residents within only a two years of taking power a massive fine. He'd seized lands from the city's bishops, and he'd kept his remaining standing military force close by to inflict his will upon it in the future. As the year 1020 dawned, any could see that the new King of England appeared to be ready to inflict upon London death by a thousand cuts. What London needed more than anything else was something to distract their Danish King, something to occupy his mind and take his eye off London for a short while. The fear could well have been that if Canute didn't become distracted by something else. Eventually, London would be given as a sacrifice to the black-winged blood cranes. And then, news arrived. Canute's brother, King Harold of Denmark, was dead. And Canute was next in line for that throne. Oh. That's handy. <laughs> All right, I'll end this chapter there. Thank you for listening. Hope you enjoyed it. There'll be a version of the script up on Imgur for anyone who wants to read along as we go forward. And I'd like to thank you for your continued support and uh, for the kind words you've been sending me. I'd also like to thank the people who've been asking me lots of questions over on Imgur. There's been some great debates going on uh, about some of the previous chapters some really interesting feedback uh, and I really appreciate that like you have no idea 
Anyway, I'll be back next week for another chapter in the story of London, and I'll see you then. Thank you. Bye.